Hello, podcast listeners. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Welcome to the NK News podcast today. It is Monday, March 28th, 2022. Joining me here in the studio are four members of the NK News and NK Pro team to discuss North Korea's breach of its own moratorium on firing ICBM missiles. But first, please leave a review about this podcast or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. Uh, I believe that on Spotify, you can't leave a review, but you can leave a rating. So please do that. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please click like and subscribe. Secondly, check out NK News, where you can find all the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues here put out each and every single day. Thirdly, follow us all on Twitter. You can find each of our handles in the show notes. And NK News Org is the general one for the whole platform. Now, to introduce our four guests today, we have NK News and NK Pro founder and managing director Chad O'Carroll. We also have Seoul correspondents Jongwen Kim and Colin Zwirko, and NK News director and Gungwon University professor Andre Lankov. Welcome on the show, everyone. Hey. Good morning. 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 Uh, Andre, let's start with the uh, the situation in Ukraine. Do you have any thoughts about what that means for North Korea? Uh, first of all, it has confirmed what they have believed all the way. Uh, that the only guarantee is guarantee of security, of nation survival or regime survival, is nuclear weapons. Uh, because uh, when uh, I used to talk about the problem, about why North Korea is not going to surrender nuclear weapons no matter what, I always mentioned first Libya, mm. second Iraq, third, Ukraine, Budapest Protocol. Probably it's time to change the order and mm. start from Ukraine. Uh, but I don't think the North Korean leaders really need the lesson. They assume, and I personally believe completely correctly, that in the current world, uh, for a country in their situation, nuclear weapons is the only guarantee of the long-term survival. They don't trust anybody, and they are probably right. Wow, uh, that is uh, some stark news there, uh, Andre. So basically, North Korea will, I mean, I know you've been saying this for a long time, North Korea will never, never give up its nukes. You can add, add, you can add one more never to that. And of course, South Korean President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol, he said uh, just a few weeks ago that one of the reasons Ukraine was in this pickle was because it had disarmed. Um, so the implicit message is he would agree, I guess, that it would be a bad security idea for North Korea to denuclearize. But he's probably not going to say that when he becomes president. Well, that's right. Now, Andre, do you believe that North Korea will be encouraged by uh, or will take the opportunity of the war in Ukraine to do some naughty things itself, like maybe test a nuclear missile, um, you know, test a few more, sorry, test a nuclear device and a few more uh, ICBM missiles? I believe they have already, this is exactly what they are doing right now. Uh, because, of course, Hwasong 17 test was going to happen. It was, I would say, advertised uh, early last year. So we did know that it was going to happen. But I believe that without Ukrainian war, it probably would happen not now, but maybe a few months later, maybe a year later. But right now, they basically are free to do whichever they want. Even nuclear test. It has been usually assumed that China is against nuclear tests and will stop them. But China now is way too busy, mm. and their value as a buffer zone for China, already great, increased even more. So 
well, probably we are going to see some earthquakes in to, with going, which is going to happen in northern part of Korean Peninsula in next few months. At least there are satellite uh, data, satellite intel, which says that they are making preparations for a nuclear test. Basically, they can do pretty much whichever they want, and I probably they will use this window of opportunity. Well, another question for you, Andre. Um, I noticed that special representative of the Chinese government on Korean Peninsular Affairs, the ambassador Liu Xiaoming, traveled all the way to Moscow on Friday to meet with Sergei Lavrov and, to, and other people and to discuss Korean matters. And here's what I found on the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. It's not very much. It's very brief. Quote, they exchanged views on the situation on the Korean Peninsula and agreed that maintaining peace and stability on the, Korean, on the peninsula meets the interest of both China and Russia. The two sides agreed to further enhance coordination and cooperation so as to promote the political settlement of the peninsula issues. End quote. Andre, what can we expect from cooperation and coordination between Russia and China on Korean issues? Uh, not much. Russia is, of course, now going to become far more positive about North Korea, I would say, less push with sanctions, uh, less willing to enforce sanctions, significantly so. And uh, given that the major issue is the North Korean workers, I would expect that North Korean workers probably will be present in Russia for a long time. And frankly, I hope it will be the case because it was a bad idea from the beginning to sanction workers. Uh, but let's face it, Russia is going to face a very difficult time. Analysts, Economically, diplomatically? Yes, yes, both. I start from economy right now mm -hmm. uh, because analysts' uh, opinions uh, are, well, they basically uncertain of how serious the sanctions regime will hit Russia. Well, everybody agrees it's going to be serious. question is how. How exactly serious? Anyway, Russia is not going to have much money. And, you know, to be friends with North Korea, you have to pay. There is no such a thing as a free friendship with North Korea. <laughs> uh, so, and Russia was remarkably unwilling to pay this money for many years, mm. for the last 30 years, uh, even when Russia had a lot of money. Russia now is going to have a lot less money and a lot more demands. So it probably will be some diplomatic smiles. We can be sure that Russia will block any additional sanctions at the UN Security Council. Uh, definitely so. Maybe we'll turn another way, we'll basically turn a blind eye to all kinds of sanctions violations as long as they are not too obvious, too large scale. But we should not expect financial support and it's what really matters for North Korea. Briefly, would you say, Andre, that the meeting in Moscow is good news for Pyongyang, bad news for Seoul? Yes. Yes, but not especially good news. It was a good news, but minor good news mm. and minor bad news. Okay, Jongmin, you've got a comment. Well, a bit of a good news for North Korea, actually, is that the Russia's direct uh, mention about their views on sanctions on North Korea, it already happened recently. Russia's deputy ambassador to the United Nations has suggested that the United States was actually to blame and said the to further... Blame for um, with, with North Korea, what North Korea is perceiving ah. as threat. And so the further strengthening of sanctions against North Korea will go beyond uh, the idea of cutting off uh, financing for the nuclear programs mm. and that it will actually threaten North Korean citizens with, uh, quote-unquote, unacceptable humanitarian problems. And China shared the similar views that the UN Security Count, uh, Council 
um, and they failed to come up with a with a joint condemnation against North Korean missiles and missile threat. And we also have to remember that Russia is going to remember that North Korea vetoed the the Ukraine related United. Uh, UN Security Council resolution. Right. So I, I guess I, I'm sen- sensing some signaling from uh, from China and Russia that North Korea will have an easier time in terms of sanctions R- and right. condemnation. Not exactly because they North Korea is their priority international relations agenda right now, but mm-hmm. because this is one of those platforms where Russia and China can show their coordination when it comes to what how they view sanctions and how they see U.S. allegedly U.S.-induced threat perceptions from other countries. Well, okay, let's keep an eye on that. Uh, Colin, let's talk about missiles. What kind of missile did North Korea launch last Thursday? Well, there's uh, there's no definite information about exactly what missile they launched on Thursday. Mm-hmm. North Korea is claiming that they launched a Hwasong-17 ICBM, their largest ever ICBM that they uh, first introduced at a military parade in, in uh, October 2020. But, oh, so we've never seen it launched before then, if right. it was a 17. Right, but right now it's it's all a bit confusing. So basically North Korea is saying that they launched the Hwasong-17 on March 24th, last Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they presented video and photos which, uh, to me, prove that the, the photos of the Hwasong-17 launch were not taken on March 24th. Likely they were taken on March 16th, and one theory is that the... Hwasong-17 was launched on March 16th and failed. Uh, we know that they launched a missile on March 16th that failed over the skies of Pyongyang. Mm. Uh, it exploded over Pyongyang. So also U.S. and South Korean military intelligence have told Yonhap News, uh, unnamed sources have told Yonhap News that the missile that was launched on March 24th was a Hwasong-15 ICBM, which they first tested just once back in November 2017. In the height of the fire and fury year. Yes. Before the rapprochement. Can you help us out a little bit? What is the difference? Well, what is known about the difference between the Hwasong 15 and the Hwasong 17? The Hwasong 17 is supposed to have a, well, it's supposed to carry multiple warheads. That's That, that seems to be their plan. Mm-hmm. And it would have longer range. So that's pretty much the main difference. Okay. Bigger. Are they both, are they solid fuel, liquid fuel uh, rockets? Liquid fuel. Liquid fuel. Okay. Hmm. Now, why would they use um, old footage? So, we we know that they used old footage. Uh, we know that there is some sort of deception going on with their presentation of the March 24th launch. Uh, we're getting closer to determining whether or not there was never a Hwasong-17 successful launch. Mm. Uh, we don't know that for a fact yet, but it seems like that might be the case. Uh, the reason why, uh, there is multiple theories. One, it could be for the domestic audience that uh, there has been a lot of rumors swirling around. We can assume, we don't know this for a fact, but we can assume there have been rumors about the failed launch on March 16th that exploded over Pyongyang. Mm. So this might be to send a message that uh, they have succeeded in testing something. Uh, this, this major missile that they've been talking about in state media for over two years now. Uh, so that's one theory. Uh, it could be, uh, this is possible, that uh, Kim Jong-un didn't know that he was perhaps naive, that uh, U.S. intelligence could easily figure out that this was not a Hwasong-17. Uh, this is also based on unnamed sources to Yonhap, but uh, it's been said that they've used infrared data to figure out exactly the thrust of the missile, and they can determine oh. the difference between a Hwasong-15 and a Hwasong-17. I don't mm. have all the technical specifics. I'm right. not an expert on that. 
but perhaps Kim Jong-un didn't, didn't know that they, they could figure that out uh, based on the data. And then, of course, state media was quite generous with their uh, coverage of the missile test, the Hwasong-17 test. Mm. And uh, I could see, just comparing satellite imagery, uh, that the, that footage was not taken on March 24th. So hmm. the Hwasong-17 that they showed launching... That's legitimate footage of a Hwasong-17 launching, ah. um, but that wasn't taken on March 24th, at least a lot of it. So, And that's based on the satellite imagery that you've looked at to compare? Yeah, they showed a lot. I mean, they showed overhead aerial drone images right. that we can exactly match to satellite imagery, and we Ooh. can see differences uh, that, that make it clear that it wasn't shot on March 24th. And also, pretty simply put, the easiest thing for probably most people to understand is that the shadows of the of the missile yeah. up on its launch vehicle were that was impossible to be in the afternoon. Uh, the shadows were indicative of a morning test, ah. and the March sixteenth test was in the morning, nine thirty a.m. Right, and the March twenty fourth test, as we know based on U.S. and South Korean data, was yeah. launched in the afternoon, two thirty. Well, I tell you what, Eagle Eye Colin, uh, that's uh, fantastic sleuthing work based on uh, on open source uh, data. There, that's uh, really quite great. I have trouble finding things on a map, so I have great respect for people who can can put these pieces together of a puzzle and, sure. and make sense of it. But let me so just yeah. So the theory is it's either uh, to, for the domestic audience, or perhaps Kim Jong Un didn't know, and his his generals and scientists were were not willing to tell him. I don't know, but um, I think it's clear that this would have been figured out. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's still an open question: Why? Who are they trying to fool? Yeah. Now, uh, Colin's uh, mentioning a uh, a video, uh, just to explain for our audience, there was, if you haven't seen it yet, there was a, a 15 minute or so broadcast uh, within 24 hours on uh, Korean Central Television and uploaded to various YouTube channels. You can find, uh, you can find the whole thing uh, on NK News' Twitter feed, and we'll also put it up, a link to it in the show notes. So yeah, we're focusing at the moment on the identity of the missile, but there are also some more lighthearted elements that we can talk about later in the podcast, uh, if time permits. So, so in summary, then, Colin, basically, whatever that missile is in the video that we saw was uh, not launched in the afternoon of March twenty fourth. Correct. But then, but, if you but, want to talk about uh, just what it means in general that they launched an ICBM, I think mm. that's that stands on its own. That that well, I w- that was yeah. Bring me to my next question: Is this a clear breach of North Korea's own moratorium on long-range uh, ballistic missile uh, and nuclear tests that it in announced back in 2018 after talks with then U.S. President Donald Trump? The the moratorium was announced before that, prior oh. to the talks with with uh, President Trump, it, but it was in I think April 2018. But I, I wouldn't call it a breach. I wouldn't use such language. I would just say that North Korea uh, made a concession that they, they, they pro- he, Kim Jong-un promised in a way. He mm-hmm. also said he, they don't need to test uh, nukes or ICBMs, which is kind of looking back now is interesting language. But uh, he also said in December 2019 that he was no longer bound, quote unquote, to this moratorium. That was very loose and vague and open mm. interpretation. And then earlier this year in January, he said... Uh, he ordered his generals to uh, recon- reconsider and resume the things which they promised to stop, which are ICBM and nuclear tests. So I think the moratorium was done, and I think it was more of uh, just a messaging and mm-hmm. on, on concessions. But no, no, no breach, just you know, telling the world that this is over, this thing that we promised as a concession. North Korea has talked about wanting to put a, a, um, a satellite up in orbit this year. And there's some speculation that it may be 
an event that could occur around the 110th birthday of Kim Il-sung as a kind of special celebration. Is the Hwasong 17, or indeed the, the 15, is that the kind of thing that would be useful for putting a satellite in orbit, or is that a different kind of rocket entirely? Uh, I'm not the expert on that exactly, but the experts have said that it, it's potentially a dual-purpose hmm. uh, first stage of the rocket, or so some, some part of it can be dual-purpose. So also the two tests at the end of February and early March that they called satellite tests, mm-hmm. uh, I've also been told by the experts, by multiple experts, that uh, those could have been dual purpose for uh, testing mechanisms which can deploy multiple satellites at once. Uh, And then the same exact piece of machinery can be used, uh, altered or used to deploy multiple nuclear warheads. Uh, So that's also potential dual purpose tests. So that's the Hwasong-17 that we're talking about, is it? Uh, Well, those would be components of the warhead. Uh, I don't know if you'd call it the Hwasong-17, but I think the the, the rocket, the Hwasong-17 is a rocket that can carry that has the potential to carry a satellite into orbit at right. a different uh, trajectory than the lofted trajectory. And speaking of that trajectory, where did parts of this missile land, the one that, uh, that we heard was launched on the 24th? Uh, Japan said 150 kilometers to the west of, their, of, a, of Hokkaido, of their northern island, so uh, within their exclusive economic zone, so quite close. Right. Is that now the exclusive economic zone? Is that different from territorial waters? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's much larger. Ah. And uh, yeah, the, I mean, North Korea has one as well. Um, they do go quite far out. You know, China often likes to say its ones extend really far. So there is oftentimes dispute about these. But it's yeah, it's relatively close to Japan. And we did see a Japanese uh, patrol aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was flying at high altitude, did appear to have a photo of, of the missile coming down. You could see the contrail of it. Um, so they seem to have put stuff into the right place to, to snap it. So in theory, if a Japanese fishing boat were out far enough it, or in the wrong place, it could have been hit by falling debris. Mm-hmm. Right. Jong-min, what's been the response here in South Korea? President Moon reacted stronger than he usually does, didn't he? strongest language in years, actually. Uh, And just following up on whether or not it's a breach of the moratorium, Mm. at least from the South Korean government's perspective and political signaling, um, whether or not to consider the moratorium as having been dead, it seems South Korea decided that they will wait for the moment that North Korea, North Korea state media directly says that they have tested an ICBM fully. And this was the moment. So mm-hmm. South Korean President Moon Jae-in, he strongly condemned the missile test a language that we haven't seen for years and said that it, it posed a grave threat to the Korean peninsula and international community. And, and he also criticized Pyongyang for breaching UN Security Council resolutions as well. Mm. And not just rhetoric, but also because it was the first ICBM since 2007, a full ICBM test since 2017, um, South Korea did something that they haven't been doing for a while, which was a live fire exercise that followed just a few minutes after North Korea. North Korea, uh, they detected North Korea's ICBM. They did a joint air, ground, and um, sea missile drill um, uh, as a counterfire. And when you say drill, does that actually mean firing things? Yes, actually firing things. Okay. And when um, we know that things are serious, when we see Defense Ministry rapidly uh, texting journalists and sending photos and videos, footage of Mm. these missile tests, which we saw 
uh, which saw that night right away. And even the day afterwards, on Friday evening, uh, South Korean Air Force did uh, something called Elephant Walk, where they see F-35A stealth jets uh, lined up um, at an airfield and taxiing, um, which is like a training for preparing for um, operation and preparedness. Wait, so they didn't actually go up in the air? Um, that part, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think so. But it's more about the taxiing and showing that they are ready to uh, depart whenever they have to. So it's and South Korean military rhetoric was also quite strong, mm. uh, mentioning retaliation capability directly, which was also a rhetoric that we've seen from unit administrations uh, mentioning of three pillar system. Right. And it was actually, a, I think, a good opportunity for Moon administration mm-hmm. to show that they are also cognizant of South Korea's retaliation capabilities. Uh, South Korean military said that these uh, joint air, ground, and sea drills are to show North Korea that they have this uh, full readiness when uh, retaliation is needed. No more Mr. Nice Guy from outgoing President Moon, who has, uh, I think, as of now, what, about five? He has been very patient. Five, six weeks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's been very patient. Mm -hmm. uh, And now he's... We're in that transition phase in South Korea where he knows he's leaving on um, May 9th, May 10th, and we've got uh, the president-elect is preparing to come in. So it's it's an interesting time in South Korea. Right. It suits the domestic purposes as well because uh, one of the the criticisms that Moon administration got uh, in the past five years is that uh, South Korea was too quote-unquote subservient towards North Korea, Mm. even when North Korea is conducting military um, exercises and missile tests. And for Boone, this is actually a very good opportunity to show the domestic public that he is actually willing to do that, right. although it's very end of his term. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel a bit bad for South Korea that uh, if they're too patient with North Korea, they're too subservient to North Korea. And if they're uh, too in line with U.S. policy, then they're subservient to uh, the great powers. Either way, they're subservient to somebody, right? Somebody's going to criticize them of that. Uh, Chad, what's been the response from the United States, both uh, media and government? The U.S. response, yeah, pushed to try and get new sanctions uh, on Friday, which uh, didn't work, as as predicted. There's been, yeah, rhetorical condemnation of it. um, But, yeah, it's certainly a very different reaction to what we saw in 2017 when North Korea was uh, testing ICBMs. Uh, Maybe it's been normalized by those tests back Mm. then, but... also, you know, I wrote about this on Friday, the global media interest. I mean, we, we knew it would be low due to Ukraine, but it was actually extremely low. Like I, I surveyed 20 major U.S. media on Friday morning. Mm. I went on their, their front pages and just eight mentioned North Korea's ICBM test. And those eight all mentioned it extremely far down, like it was almost on par with a weather report. Oh, boy. Um, so... Yeah, you can you can see how um, there's there's perhaps uh, less oxygen to to provide a sort of meaningful response right now. But yeah, I I, I guess there there was U.S. unilateral sanctions last week, or was it the week before? I can't remember. Right after. The right last right week. after. Yeah, so there were some more U.S. unilateral sanctions. Mm. Um, I think. That's, What's left to sanction? Oh, they they keep targeting individuals, mm. uh, companies associated with overseas. Uh, acquisition of weapons, parts, missile technology, etc. But I think that will basically be the the future of U.S. punitive actions. It will be more 
um, unilateral sanctions because China and Russia aren't going to go along with, with more at the UN. It's a pretty pessimistic outlook. Now, Chad, you also wrote an article for NK Pro entitled North Korea's first ICBM test in years may trigger security crisis in the region. That does sound ominous. Uh, why or how can it trigger a security crisis? Yeah, so basically um, this entire situation really mirrors what we saw between 2012 and 2013. So December 2012, North Korea announced it was going to launch an, an UNHAR-3 satellite, put it into orbit. Um, that was announced just before South Korea's presidential election. Just after the election, they went ahead and launched it. And then there were signs of a pending nuclear test. And North Korea then successfully conducted its third nuclear test just before conservative Park Geun-hye took office in um, February 2013. We have basically all, all of that mirrors exactly what's happening right now, including the political uh, transition here in uh, South Korea. Mm. What was interesting about 2013 was it didn't stop with the nuclear test. Now, the, that third nuclear test triggered sanctions, which North Korea, as normal, got very upset about. But we also then had USFK drills starting full legal, which included a lot of technology that was flown in, especially B-52 bombers, etc. Um, and we also currently, as we're sitting here right now, we're just a few days away potentially from uh, US rock exercises starting. So there's that part of the, the scenario which mirrors. And in 2013, we saw North Korea um, effectively, uh, in retrospect, it looks like it was by design. There was a, an, an artificial inter-Korean tension building campaign, but it got really, really excessive. Mm. Um, that year, we had North Korea telling embassies in Pyongyang to evacuate it told foreigners in South Korea to evacuate lest they be involved in, in this war that could be pending. North it's very Korea, considerate of them. <laughs> North Korea released a uh, US mainland strike map, which you'll, you'll remember had a, a targets of where it would use its nuclear weapons. Uh, the, um, uh, war, the armistice was declared null and void. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, on the US rock side, uh, the US was sending in B-52s. It sent in B-2 stealth bombers. It did. Uh, dry running bombing campaigns on islands. It was sending in nuclear uh, powered submarines. And uh, back in 2013, lots of foreign journalists came to South Korea to report yeah. on these tensions because they were so significant. It was Kim Jong Un's first year in power. And so the question is, is it in Kim Jong Un's interest to, to do that again? And I think the one thing that I'm not certain about just yet is whether they will seek to to mirror this as a sort of welcome gesture to Yoon. But you showed me a video this morning mm. on Uri Min Jokiri, which gave me a suggestion that they might be uh, keen to do that. I don't know if you want to explain what you, you, you saw. Yeah, there's a uh, uh, one of the official uh, YouTube channels um, on uh, from, from North Korea uh, released a, an angry uh, bellicose two or three minute video about um, the South Korean Ministry of National Defense and uh, basically uh, saying that um, joint drills with the U.S. are uh, a pathway to war and that if South Korea keeps going like this, war will break out. And so it does seem like the, the strong words are being ratcheted back up again and uh, the saber rattling has well and truly begun from North Korea. Yeah, and 2013, it kind of ended just before uh, April 15th, um, Day of the Sun celebrations. Mm. And, and it's, it actually eventually led to inter-Korean dialogue. And the Kaesong 
complex was reopened, it was shut um, amid all that tension. But the thing is, maybe Lankov has an idea here. Yeah. But like, I don't see them having any interest to have any inter-Korean dialogue this time. Andre, please, what do you think about uh, the prospects of inter-Korean dialogue and also the security crisis that uh, Chad sees uh, in, in the offing? First of all, I would also agree that some st- it's a bit even strange that they don't care, obviously, about impact on South Korean politics. Have I been an advisor to Kim Jong-un? I would suggest to wait with the lunch until after inauguration. So it would drive the wedge domestically in South Korea, which is a very divided society. And the left currently in a position will definitely have it happened. If, uh, they probably will, would definitely start blaming the right and they would say that Yoon Suk Yeol, new president, his adventurous, risky, blah, 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 policy crea- is creating this uh, crisis and so on. And it was probably quite technically possible to wait just a little. But they decided to simply mm-hmm. ignore uh, any impact it will have on the South Korean society. Because what they did greatly enforced positions of people who hate them most in South Korea. Nobody likes them in South mm-hmm. Korea, but there are people who, well, there are degrees in dislike. Uh, so it helps the coming conservative administration. I don't understand why. Talking about the security, well, probably, uh, sorry, probably I can have sort of uh, suddenly got an idea why it could be because um, they understand that uh, whoever is in power, they are not going to get money. And let's not forget their policy is first about security, second about extracting money from the outside world. So probably they decided that currently all this kind of subtle games with South Korean domestic public opinion simply are useless because it will not give them what they want, mm-hmm. dollars, dollars, and dollars. So they decided to ignore it. Still a bit strange. Uh, talking about the security crisis, personally, I don't see it's coming. The world is so preoccupied with Ukraine, uh, and it's a sort of important what Chad just said, because uh, it's such a level of disinterest in neg- and neg- neglect about what was actually a major event in Korea, I cannot recall. Uh, so um, basically, I think they can do pretty much whichever they want. They can have, I don't know, sp- uh, have a test, you know, splashing waters of California Bay, and they will get away with it. That would get a te- what, what Really? Uh, it's a most exaggeration, probably, but they can do a lot of other things. <laughs> but I'm not sure, because it looks like you have a feeling that they can afford a lot of things which just couple of months ago would be seen as mm. unsinkable. So it's really about just the global uh, stat- state affairs, a state of affairs right now. Uh, John, when you've got a comment? Right. I was also trying to make sense of the the, the choice of timing that North Korea went for with ICBM, especially mm. because I was following the election pledges closely from Yoon, which was very hardlined. But interestingly, the context here that I do want to provide is that this came just a few I think a day or two after Yoon's transition teams received report on business, uh, report on business plan by the unification ministry, which is a formal thing that transition teams usually go through. Uh-huh. Um, and in that report, unification ministry actually, it seems that they discussed the the direction of the policy that the Yoon administration will go for when it comes to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And Yoon's team's press release actually said that they are not going to go for quote unquote hardline policy. 
this was a direct mention from them. And they, although they did not exactly detail what they meant by it, they mm-hmm. said that they want to restore the unique capability of the unification ministry when it comes to inter-Korean cooperation and exchange, and that they will be open to dialogue. It sounds very Biden to me, all in all, in principle. Mm. Uh, but they do also mention that they will go for complete denuclearization of um, North Korea um, uh, in lockstep with the United States. Right. Uh, but but this hardline policy thing was quite striking to me. And, um, it, and another... Or you mean the mention of not going for a hardline policy. Right, right, right. right. And and that was also another question. Why would they say that right now mm. after... Yeah, they're not even in, in the administration yet. Right. Um, and also another uh, context here is that Yoon also during the election trail... He uh, he mentioned that he may consider scrapping the 2018 military agreement with North Korea if North Korea continues to raise tension on the Korean Peninsula and break uh, breach that agreement. And after the multiple rocket launcher test that North Korea did actually weigh northward of the buffer zone, Yoon went on to say that it actually breached the spirit of the inter-Korean agreement. Mm. Um, while the Moon administration was saying, no, no, they didn't breach it. It was way much northward. So there are these uh, very strange signaling coming out from both Yoon camp and Moon administration. Hmm. But the launch of the ICBM seems to have, uh, to some extent, unified them a little bit, doesn't it? A little bit. So that's why I sort of came to a a theory that this actually helps the Moon administration at the end of the term because Hmm. when we think about the defense pledges that Yoon is going to go for, that pledged, like the uh, restoration of three-pillar system, preemptive strike, um, increasing the missile capabilities, interceptor capabilities, radar, hypersonic missile. These are the things that probably North Korea is also um, keeping a very close eye on. And Moon administration actually having this moment to show that, oh, actually, although we were saying nice things, we were militarily prepared to do this counterfire. It actually helps the defense ministry people later on after Yoon inaugurates to say that, Actually, look, although we went for inter-Korean detente type of rhetoric, mm-hmm. we were all very much prepared. So we mm-hmm. don't have to have these new things. It's right. my um, but We do conjecture. know there's a nuclear test on the horizon. Right? It seems inevitable. There is a satellite test on the at launch on the horizon. Uh, and then, you know, we, we create, Colin and I created this um, uh, infographic, which mm. shows the 12, it's 12, 12 types of technology that the North Koreans are working on as part of the five-year military plan so we've still got what three and a half years of that to go which is going to be a whole ton of tests that take place um across the next 3.5 years and oh, well, that, that we should put a, a link in the show notes to the article yeah, where yeah. that infographic is uh, is and, included that's uh, quite helpful yeah i so on on this contributing towards an atmosphere that can create a security crisis i think um, I would agree with Lankov in the sense that I don't think it will get much media interest, but I think there will still be the underlying tension. It's just it won't be mm. it won't be perceived as much outside of the peninsula. But when I've been thinking through how will a UN administration respond to these kinds of things, nuclear test, satellite launch, if indeed they mm-hmm. occur within his presidency, I mean he's got he can fire off missiles um, into the, the ocean. Um, but then he's got other options that I think Moon wouldn't consider, like turning the loudspeakers back on. Mm. Um, the, the propaganda loudspeakers yeah, at the border at the, at or the demilitarized zone. Which the North Koreans are very, very sensitive about. Mm. Um, That's you know, why that agreement's important, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the 2018 mm. inter-Korean military agreement, yeah. And, uh, you know, 
potentially trying to strong arm um, the uh, a reversal of the um, leaflet prohibition mm. although i think he would need a lot of support he will have to wait until 2024 yeah. to fully do that because of the uh, parliamentary election right it was a law that was passed by the national assembly so that would have to yeah can can a south korean president uh, with an executive order like a u.s president rescind laws like that, Is that... i think it's very difficult okay. institutionally but in south korea of course if uh, Hypothetical scenario, if a if an activist goes on with the leaflet activity, the rhetoric from the government could be much lenient compared uh, to the Moon administration. Yeah. And it, that will impact the police investigation, actually. So there's all, all uh, yeah, look, and any of these things I think will trigger North Korea to respond even, you know, we may see things like live fire drills right on the border, mm. Kim Jong-un doing visits to places just adjacent to the, the, the uh, DMZ, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it may not be picked on internationally as, as being a crisis, but the conditions will be very similar to what we saw in 2013. And then the problem is always like if there's miscalculation or someone makes a bad assumption and, and takes things a little bit too far, then we can be in, a, in serious trouble. And what's happening at Pungeri, Chad? Well, uh, yeah, the, the uh, South Korean um, intelligence authorities have been making it clear that, at least to Yonhap, um, they don't always share this stuff with us, but they've been making it clear that the tunnels are being renovated and prepared for uh, testing. Um, I do just remind, remind our listeners what and where is Pungeri? It's in the far northeast of North Korea, and it's a nuclear test facility that's been used since 2006 for detonating uh, weapons. And uh, it was partially demolished in 2018, May Oh, that was one where the foreign journalists were taken up there yeah. to watch some demolition at uh, Pungeri, right? And so they now were, they're... Yeah, they did t- initially offer to bring missile experts, nuclear specialists to, to observe it. But then they, they, remit- they reversed that part of the mm. invitation. Yeah, it's funny. I was reviewing that yesterday. And at the time when they invited the journalists there, they were saying stuff like, uh, why do you doubt us that this is real that we're really permanently mm-hmm. uh destroying these tunnels uh you can see it with your own eyes we were exploding it inside the tunnels and the entrances and all this stuff and right uh but yeah looking back now the the reports now is that they're trying to the theory is now that they're or the the information coming out now is that they're trying to dig a shortcut into one of those tunnels that they haven't ever used before tunnel number three uh and so Obviously, they always had options open to them, and that was clear. Uh, you can't always take them at their word. And we've also seen, I mean, Lankoff will remember uh, when we watched the, uh, the demolition of the, the cooling tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, gosh, what year was that? That's a long time. 2007. Right, part of the, uh, the six-party talks, sure. they destroyed a cooling tower, part of, uh, of Yongbyon, I think. Uh, so th- th- we, we've seen uh, permanent de- demolitions of things before, but uh, permanent doesn't mean you can't rebuild. Uh, even more complicated, like this cooling tower, it's now clear that they, de- they demolished something they did not really need. Nah. First of all, it would be easy to build again, uh, but they be- switched to a different cooling system. Uh. So all this permanent demolition by North Koreans, unless it's some kind of high-tech equipment, you mm-hmm. know, if centrifuges are blown in presence of technicians, yeah who are allowed to poke their noses everywhere, it might be taken seriously. Everything is just a show. We have seen so many such shows. People have short memories, but uh, basically, if you look at 20, 25 years, they have done so many permanent things which were reversed in a year or two or five. Yeah. Um, uh, Jongmin? 
I was just going to say that all these, this sort of serves as an important historical precedent for anyone who will be handling North negotiation with North Korea on what's irreversible, what's permanent, um, what can be considered progress on denuclearization. Yeah. And Yoon has not come up with any solid denuclearization pro, uh, roadmap yet. Um, he, we will probably see more when he inaugurates, but he will definitely face more challenges after seeing, you know, the, them restoring these after saying it's permanent. Andre, briefly, would a nuclear test increase the likelihood of losing Russian and or Chinese support and attracting unfriendly attention from the United Nations Security Council? Uh, you know, just one month ago, a bit more than one month ago, I would say definitely so. Now I'm saying I'm not sure. Hmm. China is not going to be happy about it. Uh, but I don't see China or, for that matter, Russia voting for extra sanctions. Uh, so probably they will make some kind of verbal condemnation, which mm-hmm. is basically good for nothing. Uh. And, but China has more important ways, more powerful tools to penalize North Korea. They can basically reduce amount of aid they openly or not so openly providing to Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. I think that probably they will do something, but it will be purely of symbolic nature. In the current situation, China is willing to ignore all kind of North Korean misbehavior mm. because they badly need a buffer zone. And, well, it's better to have an unruly buffer zone than no buffer zone or buffer zone in the, zone in the state of chaos. Remind us, why does China need a buffer zone? Uh, basically, well, Ch- uh, U.S. forces are in uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. Military specialists sometimes say does that, you know, is three, four hundred kilometers, five hundred kilometers don't make much difference. I'm not sure. I'm not a specialist, but it's quite clear that it's for centuries, for millennia, it was a kind of instinct mm. to keep hostile forces further away. And right now, this Sino-U.S. rivalry, there is no doubt that China has good reasons to see U.S. forces as hostile forces. Colin? Uh, yeah, I also wonder if uh, the last time China strongly condemned North Korea was back in 2017, mm. and Xi Jinping hadn't met Kim Jong-un yet, and uh. they've had... How many summits is it? Three, four, four, five? Something like that. So maybe in the course of all those conversations between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un, uh. maybe Xi Jinping was reassured that Kim Jong-un wasn't crazy with mm. his missiles, but uh, rather, you know, if, if Xi Jinping is as realistic as everyone else and knows that they won't denuclearize and that he's not going to give up his nuclear weapons, uh, maybe he was convinced that such tests don't realistically, physically change the game. They just, it's, it's about tension uh, and miscalculation potentially, but... Mm. Uh, maybe he's not that worried anymore that a nuclear test really changes anything, and he's not worried that Kim Jong-un's going to miscalculate. And we did live in a world until just a couple decades ago where various countries were testing nuclear weapons on a regular basis, mm-hmm. ICBMs. I mean, France was doing it out in the, France the, the, the tropics. Mirroroa. Yeah, and um, the back then it was just part of uh, responsible nuclear states' preparations to ensure their weapons work correctly, and it didn't trigger crises every time they did it, but because it's North Korea, it does. But now, seven tests, six tests in, um, is is that shock value really there? No, yeah. it's not. But on the face, they'll still have to maintain that they're against North right. Korea being a nuclear state because of the NPT and all that. But North Korea holding fire during Beijing Olympics could have that given China an impression that they are trustworthy alliance, maybe? Mm. Probably, probably yes, because uh, my 
personal expectations was used and I even went to power, said, said so in the NK News uh, pieces that they would wait and for any kind of ICBM launches or nuclear tests, they would wait after the first South Korean elections, second after the Beijing Olympics. This is what they did. So looking forward about two and a half weeks to April 15th, uh, what do you think we can expect to see on or around the 110th birthday of Kim Il-sung? Probably a satellite launch and a, a nuclear test uh, as sprinkles on top, Colin? Well, real quickly, I, I don't know about the nuclear test. Sure, the, the thing that came out uh, from South Korean intelligence to Yonhap was that a one-month window of restoring based on some shortcut digging that they're going to do in, in the, the underground uh, mm-hmm. nuclear test facility. Definitely, they're going to have a military parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can see that in satellite imagery, all the preparations going on in Pyongyang. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to involve uh, missile launchers, heavy weaponry, a lot of troops. Uh, we know that's coming. Will it be midnight, the first minute of April 15th? Uh, will it be a daytime? Who knows? There will, as far as a satellite launch, I'll just say that the last four, no, uh, well, the uh, 2009, 2000. Two in 2012 and one in 2016, the last four satellite launches that they conducted were all just you know two to nine days around before some kind of holiday. And one of those was April 15th. So uh, yeah, I would say you know about 10 days before April 15th, maybe there was going to be a satellite launch. Which is next week. Which yeah. is next week. Question without notice, Colin, are there any North Korean satellites currently in orbit around the Earth from previous launches? I think that there's one that they claimed successfully in 2016, which they multiple times claimed they were getting data from, uh, but I don't think it's been really confirmed by... I don't no, know. Kong 3, it right? It was determined to have entered orbit, and I think it was uh, picked up as uh, sending data, but it maybe it faded out or the battery, I don't know. Yeah. Was there a recon? Kong 4 in 2016. There was a recon satellite no, no, or no, a no, communication no. satellite? Uh, that's another thing. All the other ones were, were very openly, very, you know, uh, they were so emphatic about them being quote-unquote peaceful uh, Earth, uh, Earth observation satellites. And this uh-huh. one's a military reconnaissance satellite through and through. You mean oh, the one that we're, we're looking The one for. that they're planning, right? or multiple ones that they're planning, yeah. are military use. So that could also change uh, the way that they're open or not open about their plans. Okay. And Chad, if there is a uh, parade on Kim Il-sung's birthday, uh, t- tell our audience what they can expect. Um, well, I mean, standard. I mean, from us, because we'll be covering it. Oh, right. <laughs> from us. Yeah. So um, some of you may remember in October 2020, we did, uh, following a customer request, we did a very special video live stream on YouTube, like sports style commentary. Mm. And uh, we'll be doing that again this year. Um, I'm actually going to be on holiday then. So I will be tuning in. From, mm. So it's a chance uh, for Spain. me to step into the hot seat and do a bit of live commentary. Who, who are the guests? Uh, we've got uh, John Wins there. Chris uh, Green from the International Crisis Group is in town, so he's on call for this. Used. Used Olimans from uh, Oryx, Oryx Blog. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, Yost, who was a, a, a previous guest about the, uh, uh, that, that book that he and his uh, colleague wrote about the uh, North Korean military. Yeah. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. It should be very interesting. Of course, the, the North Korean parades being what they are, we don't know what time it will be broadcast. Uh, it's likely not to be live broadcast. They often do these things at night and then broadcast it sometime the next day. So uh, basically, I'm on call to jump into the studio as soon as this thing begins. So. We might want to be on call starting on April 11th. <laughs> because, what? Well, 
it's Kim Jong Un's tenth anniversary of becoming right. the first secretary of the party. So, <sighs> and they've today in the Rodong Shimin, they the first uh, official event has they announced the first first official event kicked off for Kim Jong Un's official tenth anniversary, which is a pretty uh, big change. I, they, um, I just hate that my birthday is that week. I don't think it'll be on April eleventh. <laughs> I think it'll probably be April fifteenth. I don't think he's going to show up his father by making the military parade on his anniversary or his grandfather. Sorry, yeah. but um, but. Yeah. My bet is it's a daytime parade this time. April 15th? Yeah, I think they I bet midnight. that it's going to be midnight, but... Oh, yeah? Yeah, money. Could also depend on weather factors too, right? Like if it's scheduled to rain on that day, they might do it. Yeah, they night. have had ones delayed until the afternoon. Or at, at, at sunrise, you know, right as the sun comes up. <laughs> well, day of the sun, so yeah. maybe... I'll be sleeping then. Um, so send them a message. Tell them not to do it at that time. Let's talk about, uh, finally, just uh, some of the lighter aspects of the 15-minute uh, video from North Korea. It seemed to borrow some tropes from Hollywood filmmaking. Wouldn't that be fair to say? I think it more so borrowed tropes from high school video productions. Which in turn borrow tropes from Hollywood filmmaking, right? It's uh, yeah. uh, the slow motion, the, uh, the rapid cuts back and forth, the checking the watch, the removing of the sunglasses. I mean, these were uh, incredible. Door opening twice, zooming in. Right. Uh, the, the the men walking in front of a uh, a large rocket on wheels. I felt like that was from Armageddon. The zoom in on the thumbs up. Zoom in, thumbs up, thumbs up, up and point. then oh. uh, pointing at the wristwatch and then giving a cue sign, right. shades off. Shades off. But then one Twitter user actually pointed out, or a YouTube user actually pointed out that it, uh, quote, it, said, it says a lot about how North Korea operates when you see that they are timing their ICBM from their wristwatches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, that was. They well, were but timing, that's, on, that's for optics. No, though, yeah, they I were think. timing uh, when they should take it, it out. out of the garage, right. uh, which is I don't know yeah. why they have to do right. that. But and then the, uh, the the shouting of the of Balsa launch, you know, where it's sort of like a um, one after the other because that's what you have to do apparently. Yeah. Ten second countdown and an alarm. Yeah, right, which is it was, it's probably an event they would have had to rehearse for a little bit, done yeah. maybe one one or two dry runs before making it all happen. So something like with a, with a director, supreme leader, right? like go this way and right. then point to your watch and yeah. things like that. Andre, were you impressed by the video? Uh, it, it was a bit funny because it reminded me a big, great Hollywood movie from maybe, say, 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, but this is what is encouraging these people. On the other hand, well, it's another reminder that they have new people in propaganda system, people uh. who studied overseas, usually in China, but some some most privileged in Europe, uh, people who basically have seen a lot of foreign movies and they know how to do things. Well, not exactly, as I have said, big rate level. Uh, so it's a bit kind of slightly ex excessive and comical and kind of cliche reach. Um, as I said, be great. Uh, but uh, compared to what they used to do before, which mm -hmm. was a copy of low-quality Soviet clips of the late Stalin period, it's a massive, it's a quantum jump, I mm. would say. However, if you listen to the uh, kind of n narration done by, I believe, Ichun He, uh, so uh, it's quite, uh, frankly, it's boring and not that innovative. It's a bit of a juxtaposition because you have the old influence through her commentary and yes. this very modern new visual style. Yeah, it's quite unusual pairing. You think yeah. it's a Kim Yo-jung director uh, learned from her father, the director? <laughs> uh, <laughs> She's sitting there with Final Cut. 
Uh, no, I think that she basically, well, people who were approving it, who come with, came with these ideas, there, as I have said, people that, who studied in Switzerland, in Sweden, in the UK, in China, most of them, they have seen a lot of such big, great movies, martial arts movies, James Bond stories. And you know what was a bit funny for me? Mm. Uh, because when you see it, uh, especially in the beginning, when you have this kind of door sliding and you have this trio with Kim Jong-un in the dark glasses, um, it's usually how the bad guys are shown in the big, great movies. It's not a force of good. It's how the forces of evil are depicted in these movies. Or cool guys. I could see a lot of effort trying to make Kim Jong-un's image cool. Sunglasses, right. the leather jacket, the short jacket this yeah. time. Um, the way he walks and the cool guy trope in many movies is that when they launch something, they don't look back. Right. So Kim Jong-un just walks in front of the ICBM towards the launching space, maybe, um, and not looking at looking back at the missile. And all these tropes just seem like uh, they, they're trying to look make North Korea look cooler to the audience that they're facing right now and domestically. But you know what we all have to admit? He's very good in weight loss. He's much slimmer. He, Karen, finally he looks like a man of his age. Not very fit, but okay, should look like. It was a great, a triumph of will, I would say. It's a bit of a callback there. Um, a practical question. The transporter, transporter erector launcher that the, uh, the rocket comes on, when, when a rocket uh, launches from something like that, do the... What happens to the tires or the wheels of such a, uh, a vehicle? Do they, uh, do they burst? Are they, are they specially reinforced to, to maintain that kind of pressure? Um, I believe Ankit was saying, someone raised that question, and I believe Ankit was saying that they, uh, they probably survive, but they will have to go through refurbishment afterwards. Yeah, and, and they use special kind of, I don't know how it's called in English. Uh, basically, they legs. use kind of kind of legs which are going down. By the way, they were briefly for a second or two shown in this yeah. clip how they were, because you don't use tires. You yeah. don't use tires for it's all like this time. Like if you see cranes, they, they elevate with these metal ah, legs. Okay. But, so you, but even that can only withstand but, so much. But there's also, like, if you look at where the missile was launched, it, like, really juts off yes. the end. And uh, it's not directly above ah. the tires that it's firing from. So there's yep, probably yep, a, yep. a meter or two of distance between where it fires from and the, the back tire. But, um, yeah, it would certainly be a lot of heat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, air expands when there's heat. So That's why there are burn marks. And right. uh, on the ground up, yeah. Because that's one of those topics we've talked about before is that uh, North Korea may have a lot of missiles, but it's actually limited in its number of uh, transport or elect erector launches. Yeah, though we, we do know now that they're making their own. Making given their own these. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't see exactly who wrote this comment. I don't remember, but someone said uh, that they wouldn't be, in, in wartime, they wouldn't be uh, exactly trying to go back and uh, replenish the, the, the launcher with, a, with another missile immediately. I mean, yep. they would want to, but it's... You know, it serves right. its use once they go out. Right, you're you're one and done. Once war begins, that's pretty much yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, <laughs> uh, quickly, everyone. Final thoughts as we uh, round off this podcast, Andre. It's been a long time since we've had you on the podcast. You got any final thought to leave us with? Well, so uh, we have to gradually learn to live with a nuclear North Korea capable of attacking any U.S. city capable of attacking any other country. And what we sort of touched today, without probably 
kind of attracting too much attention is that North Korea as a nuclear country has been normalized. You know, it was bound to happen. I've been saying that it, sooner or later it would happen. For 20 years I've been saying so, and now it's beginning to happen. Uh, we have to learn how to live with this place. And in the long run, it's probably dangerous, because if you think why they need such a level of capabilities, it's not really defensive capabilities mm. anymore. Okay, so you're an but, optimist. Mm. But, but we have no choice. All right. Uh, Sunshine and Roses from Andre. Chad? Yeah, um, I'd just say keep an eye out for what happens um, before and after uh, Yoon takes power. Right. Um, May 10th? Yeah, I'm still on the fence as to whether we'll see something as, as crazy as the intercreen tensions of 2013, but mm. I'd, I'd say that, that you know it's quite possible that it will happen. And if that does, um, at least on the peninsula, we'll see lots of exchanges of nasty words and threats to tear up agreements and live firing drills and exercises and all sorts of rhetorical uh, developments, but not necessarily anything that actually brings the two careers into conflict. But um, the big, I'd say, wild card is Yoon. Uh, how will he respond yeah. to these kinds of challenges? He hasn't got the experience, political or military, um, and uh, we may see some rash uh, decisions. Yeah, I probably echo what, what the others have said. It's it's North Korea's shown at every moment in the last couple of years that, and they've said it and they've shown it, we're doing our thing. We're building up our military. Uh, Kim Jong-un's number one goal is to protect protect his power, you know, his mansions, his horses, his cars, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to keep the system in place. That's my opinion. And uh, also, they're not going to really care that much if South Korea is blasting off some missiles as a response. He's going to say, okay, cool, you do that. We're doing our thing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also skeptical about a, the potential of another uh, manufactured crisis, uh, inter-Korean crisis or such. Um, I've yet to see a sign that they're going to do that, but those things happen suddenly. They're switched on and switched off, so that could happen. And yeah, I kind of agree with what Chad said about Yoon. Okay, and Jongmin? Just to follow up on that a little bit, um, although I generally agree, I, I think after we saw that no hardline policy comment, I can sense that there are some moderates in Yoon's foreign policy team potentially and we should remember that under um, under Yoon's transition team foreign policy, many of them are former Lee Myung-bak administration um, foreign policy and security aides. And mm. if we remember correctly, uh, even during the conservative presidents like Lee Myung-bak, there were attempts at, at having inter-Korean summits and backdoor discussions with North Korea. So we shouldn't rule that out completely. Okay. Wow. So a lot of things to keep an eye on. Well, thanks once again for coming on the show today. Shadow Carol, Jongmin, Kim Collins, Wirko, and Professor Andre Lankov. Um, and we will look forward to having you back on the show again next time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, coughs, strings, uh, springs, and awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.